Why you grab a Bible and turn to Acts chapter 1. We finished off at verse 11 last week. We're going to read from verse 12 through to the end of the chapter. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 1092. 1092. Acts 1, 12 to 26. We'll read that in a wee second. Let me start by telling you about the Burj Khalifa. Anyone heard of it? Yeah, tallest building in the world. Look at that. That's colossal, isn't it? That stands at half a mile high. It is massive, 2,717 feet precisely. And when construction was completed a couple of years ago, um, everyone was talking about it. Because several world records were smashed. It was the tallest building in the world. It has the fastest elevator in the world. 40 miles an hour. You fancy that? The highest observation deck on the 124th floor. It's only about four-fifths of a mile up. No, that's not right. No, I'm going to skip the maths bit. (laughs) I got Scott Vick level maths when I was at school. You ask me about the Trinity, I'll have a good go at that. Um, Anyway, besides the point, people were gushing over this thing. They were gushing over its height, but there was this kind of strange breed of people who were gushing over its depth. Structural engineers. Structural engineers marveled at this thing. The 164 foot deep foundation and it seemed that at the time not many people were very excited about it apart from the structural engineers except the fact that everybody knows how important deep and good foundations actually are without a solid foundation the world's tallest building would become the longest pile of rubble but with a solid foundation however comes the guarantee of a durable future Now that for me is what makes me ready and willing to enter into a building even of that size. Even to venture up potentially to the 124th floor to the observation deck. But if I'm not confident in the foundations, do you think I'm going to go into that building? Let's take the leaning tower of Pisa. It leans. (laughs) That's a bad sign. Do you know it leans to the south? Do you know that it used to lean to the north? Yeah, you're in no way. I'm going to stand outside and appreciate it from a distance, but I'm not going in that thing, okay? Who knows what could happen? But these are the things that make us comfortable. These are the things that make us confident. If we know that something's got a sure foundation, we'll be keen to enter into it. We'll be comfy. Of course, it's not just buildings that have foundations. Everybody's life is built on something. Uh, Even the Christian church is built on a foundation. You can read about that in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 20, which tells us that God's people are the church, and they are like a building that has a foundation. And what's the foundation? The apostles and prophets. In other words, Old and New Testament witnesses to Jesus. And Jesus is the cornerstone, the one who holds it all together. 
In other words, the word of God is the foundation for the church. And if you like, the launch pad for Christian missions. Because that's what we're thinking about in the book of Acts. Here's a question for you. Do you have confidence in this foundation? The Bible. The word of God. Old and New Testaments. The words of the prophets and the apostles. Do you have confidence in this foundation? Do you have the kind of confidence where you're so sure that you're willing to enter into the church that is built on this foundation? Through faith in Jesus Christ? Not talking about a building. Talking about God's people gathered by the gospel. Well, we should have confidence. We need to have confidence in the foundation or else we'll never enter it. Or else when we're in it, we might not really have the confidence to share it. To spread this word of God abroad to every nation. If you're not sure of the foundations of our faith, you're not going to be likely to share it. And that's a problem. Because we saw last time in Acts chapter 1 that the key assignment of the church is to be Christ's spirit-filled witnesses testifying to the truth about Jesus everywhere. Everywhere. So how can we be sure? Well, we can start by studying Acts chapter 1 verses 12 to 26. It's basically all about foundations. Now when you read this chapter, all through chapter 1 and then into the start of chapter 2, it does, this 12 to 26, I kind of thought at first when I read it, this seems like a little bit of an interruption. You know, we've just had in verses 1 to 11 the promise, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. In other words, you're going to have power to proclaim. Well, it would really make sense to go straight into Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, wouldn't it? Where you see Pentecost power given to the apostles and then Peter doing what? Proclaiming. Power to proclaim. Bish bash bosh. It's brilliant. How foolish to look over a text like this which informs us of the necessity of good foundations. Let me read this from verse 12. They returned, that is the apostles, returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. 
So they proposed two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. Okay, two main points tonight. Let me map it out for you. Number one, verses 12 to 14. The church is founded on a small band of praying believers. If you want to take it in church planting terms, that's the launch team. In verses 15 to 26, we have the second point. The church is founded on a full complement of apostles. If you like, the leadership team. Launch team, leadership team. Okay, number one. The launch team. The church is founded on a small band of praying believers. A small band of praying believers praying in expectancy. That makes for a firm foundation, doesn't it? They are united in prayer. In other words, with one mind. The Apostle Paul would later say that they, with one voice, would declare the glories of God. Well, here we find them with one mind praying together. Praying together for the same thing. Totally focused. What are they praying? Well, praying prayers of praise, no doubt. They've just had the scriptures open to them by Jesus. They've just had the promise of power and the promise that they will be God's agents in taking this gospel from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Luke tells us at the end of his gospel that they, in this, this 10-day period between Jesus ascending to glory and the Holy Spirit falling on them at Pentecost, that they were daily in the temple praising God. So surely praying prayers of praise. But I think they're also praying for the Spirit to come. What else would they be looking for? They're waiting in expectancy for the Holy Spirit to fill them. And Jesus had promised what that would look like. Jesus promised them, had told them what it would mean for them in terms of their witness. Now I think that's a wonderful thing to see. Because they could have just said, isn't that wonderful? Jesus has promised it, therefore we can rest back on our laurels and it will happen. Well no, that's not what we see God's promises don't make prayer a useless exercise. On the confidence, it's the very thing that gives us uh, on the confidence. On the contrary, that's what gives us the confidence to make our prayers regular. So do we pray, brothers and sisters, with the same kind of single-mindedness? Are our prayers focused on a unified goal as a church? The spreading of his good news in this city and to the ends of the earth? Sometimes our praying can be rather tame. I say that because we were at the FIC conference this week, the leaders conference, the staff team that is. And we were given a reminder throughout that conference of the greatness of Jesus. His great care as our shepherd, his generosity over us. It was wonderful. But we were encouraged in that time to recognize that God is not like an unjust judge. He's not reluctant to give us things. He's keen. He loves it. He is a father after all. We were encouraged to pray big prayers. Prayers of faith in light of God's generosity. Does that mark our praying? We need not settle for little prayers when we have such a great God. We don't just see them being single-minded in praying. We see them persisting in prayer as well. It's not just a single prayer that they offer up and then off to do something else. No, it's what, what we're told here by Luke is that they just keep on going. They're praying out of a longing. Praying out of a longing to be filled with the Spirit and persisting just as Jesus taught them to. 
as he taught them a parable so that they would not give up or lose heart. Well, sometimes we pray, but little seems to happen. And do we lose heart? Do we give up? Jesus didn't tell the disciples precisely when they they would receive the Spirit. He just told them to wait in Jerusalem. Well, we don't see them pray a couple of times and then go away and do something else and, you know, check their Facebook or something like that. No, they are praying persistently. And we too, as a group of believers, should be praying in expectancy in light of the commission that God has given us. The key assignment that he that has been passed on to us to make disciples in our city and of all nations. The other thing we see here, of course, is that it's very small beginnings. Did you ever notice that Jesus, when he appeared after his resurrection, I think it's in John said he appeared to more than 500 at one time. How many do you see in Jerusalem just now? 120 believers. It hits home with the reality that not all believed but many did but it's a small group nonetheless you think they felt overwhelmed with the task you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem okay the place where Jesus just got killed you know Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth well maybe they did feel a bit overwhelmed but they did know that the spirit would make a difference it's interesting to see there's 120 of them Uh, I looked at uh, a commentary this week which told me that at that that time then that meant there was one believer for every 30,000 Jews in their nation. That's overwhelming. Now compared to the size of Edinburgh, a church of 550 members like ours, was not much, but there's still one believer for every 9,000 people in our nation and one for every 818 believers in our city. The odds are not as stacked against us as they were back then. It was Wesley, of course, who said, give me a hundred men who love Jesus and hate sin and I'll shake the world for Christ. Well, we're small beginnings, but who knows, with great prayers and with the Spirit's power, who knows what God can do through us if we have boldness and the courage to speak. What we see in verses 12 to 14 is a small group with a great foundation. It's a kind of platform that you want for taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And in Acts 1, 12 to 14, it seems so encouraging. And yet, there are signs that all is not well. Luke's list of names for the apostles makes it very clear. How many did you count? I got Scott Vick level maths and even I saw there were 11. Not 12. There's supposed to be 12. Jesus himself said so. There's supposed to be 12. Will the mission then collapse before a foundation stone has even been laid? Will the foundations be incomplete somehow? Will the gospel subside and sink into oblivion? No, a replacement will be sought. A replacement will be appointed. And this is what we see in point two. The church founded on a full complement of apostles chosen by Jesus. Verses 15 to 20 tell us that there is a need for a new leader. And two things necessitated the appointment of a new leader. One, the failure of Judas. Judas had betrayed Jesus. He had served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. In other words, helped them get him killed. 
And Peter says here in his speech that he was one of us. He shared in our ministry. You can almost hear the pain in that really. And this was a big deal. I mean, Jesus had said, you will receive power, you will be my witnesses. But I think this is in here to show us that actually there's something not quite right. There is something that's threatening to derail the mission from the very start. And you can understand why. I mean, one of Jesus' own. (laughs) Betraying him? Isn't that going to discredit this band of apostles who are supposed to be the foundation for taking the gospel to the ends of the earth? It's not even going to get past Jerusalem. Is it? I mean, one of their own betrayed Jesus. That kind of betrayal in a business world or in a sporting team can cause businesses and teams to crumble. Will this discredit them as a group? Discredit the gospel entirely, their message? Why should I believe that when even one of their own circle didn't? You can imagine how it would go. But of course it was no surprise to Jesus. Jesus told them very clearly in John 6, Did I not not myself choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. It was part of God's plan. He was in control over it all. And his end, Judas's end, was predicted even in scripture. You see that in verse 20, May his place be deserted, let there not be no Uh, let there be no one to dwell in it of course we see in Psalm 41 even my close friend whom I trusted he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me and now Judas is dead hanged himself in terrible circumstances killed himself but this betrayal will not capsize the church or sink the mission before it's even set sail No, not at all. Because this is what else we see. The Bible said it should happen. The appointment or the need to appoint a new leader was something that was written down in the scripture. Verse 20b, may another take his place of leadership. Now, what do you think is going on behind the scenes here? I I, I love this. The text tells us that this text tells us what the disciples were doing in the 10 days between the ascension of Jesus and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And this betrayal of Judas Judas would surely have rocked them because they didn't see it coming. Well, Jesus had warned them. But look at what they're doing. They're searching the scriptures. Why do you think they're doing that? Well, in Luke chapter 24, we've seen the Lord Jesus risen, teaching them, showing them from the scriptures, taking them through a massive Bible study to show them about what was written about him, that he would suffer first, then enter glory. And now it seems that they are searching these scriptures. And as a result, they're doing what it says. It's a picture really of obedience for us. That is the answer in its simple terms. And yet, there's something a little bit more behind the scenes. Something deeper behind the simple instruction. Because this is why a replacement was needed. Because Jesus in his ministry had explained that this foundation that he was forming with 12 men would be the the beginning of a new people who would make his glory known among the nations. In the Old Testament, God had chosen to do that through Israel, through the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Now, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, you belong to the people of God if you belong to one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Of course, Abraham in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15 was promised, you're going to be the father of all nations. The promise was carried on to his son Isaac and on to Jacob. And God changed Jacob's name to Israel and gave him 12 sons, the progenitors, the very source, if you like, of the 12 tribes. But Jesus chose to make 12 men the foundation of his new covenant people in a very deliberate sense. To show that he is doing something new. In the New Testament, we see Jesus create a new people. He's building a church. And what was the foundation? Not 12 tribes, but 12 apostles. 12 pile-driven pillars that would form an unshakable foundation for the church that he would build Not through bloodline, not through circumcision, but through faith. So Jesus had already explained to them all the way along, even in John chapter 2, that he was replacing things. Do you see this all the way through? Destroy this temple and I will rebuild it again in three days. And they're like, this took 46 years to build this building. How foolish. He was not talking about the building. He was talking about his body. I am the newer and better temple. In other words, I'm the replacement for this temple. Where was a place that people went to meet with God? It was there, under the old covenant. Where in the new covenant will people go to meet God? To Jesus, the new and better temple. He used this replacement language all the way through. I don't have time to go through all the ones I've got here. He's explained that he was a great high priest. He was replacing everything. He'd explained that he was the Lamb of God, the sacrifice for sins, once for all. He was a new and better Lamb. <laughs> that one's final atonement. So it's no surprise then that as he institutes this new covenant in his blood, a new thing to remember, a new people who will like old Israel will multiply in number and declare his glory and spread his glorious fame to the nations. That's why there's a need for a new leader. Judas's betrayal, yes. Bible, actually, it instructed it. But deeper than that, God is building a foundation of 12 pile-driven pillars as the baseline for a new covenant people of God. Where a church, on top of which, a church will be built that nothing can stop. Not even the gates of hell can stand against it, Jesus says. So we need a new leader. What are the criteria? What's, what's on the job description for this new leader? You know, when you're looking for a job, you often read in the ad some essential requirements. Well, Peter's got a few of his own. This is what we see in verses 21 to 26. These are the criteria for apostleship. First of all, he had to have heard something. Verse 21 says, It's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning at John's baptism. What's the point of that? Well, it's just that he's been there. He's heard the teaching. He's had the verbal instruction that he's received from Jesus himself. 
Now, maybe you're unfamiliar with how this works and what apostle means and all that. Let me start with this. When Jesus walked this earth, crowds followed him. Crowds. Thousands at times. But among the crowds were his disciples. And at times, that refers to a number that's more than just the 12. So, it's, so he sends out 72 disciples, for example. But disciple basically means that you're a student, you're a learner. But among his disciples, he had 12 capital D disciples, whom he sometimes called apostles. So the disciple, if you like, is a student. But what's the difference? Well, an apostle is an ambassador. The idea is that you're a special representative commissioned by a king and given authority to speak on that king's behalf. That's the ambassadorial, authoritative, apostleship role. The word of the apostle was the word of the king. The word apostolos in Greek was used commonly to refer to emissaries and ambassadors sent out from kings at the time. It's a simply understood word. So the disciple is a student, but the apostle is an ambassador. And Jesus is setting aside particularly these 12 to be ambassadors. So that when they go and speak their words, their message, it is definitively the message of the king. Okay? Make no mistake about that. Definitively the message of the king. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. So you had to have heard something. You had to have had the verbal instruction from Jesus. Second thing, you had to have seen something. You had to have had visual confirmation of the risen Jesus. Why? Because you're going to have to tell everybody what you saw. If you're going to testify to the truth about Jesus as a foundational pillar of the church, then he needs to have seen the risen Jesus. What's the big deal with the resurrection? Well, it doesn't happen every day. Let's face it, it's a big deal. <laughs> More than that though, theologically speaking, the resurrection is recognized as the vindication of Christ's name. The vindication and proof positive that the sacrifice that he paid on Good Friday with his blood on the cross was accepted. It's a receipt. And plus it's fuel for mission. Wait till you hear what I've just seen. <laughs> so that was a big deal. You needed to have heard something. Verbal instruction from Jesus. You needed to have seen something. Visual confirmation of the risen Jesus. But thirdly, you had to have been personally commissioned by King Jesus. Now, this is what the drawing of lots is all about. Okay? Now, this is a kind of text where they propose two men, verses 23 to 25, and they end up, then they cast lots, verse 26, sorry, and the lot fell to Matthias. This is the kind of text that causes a lot of discussion in Bible study, doesn't it? In little small groups. You can go to town in a text like this. And we shift uneasily. Do we get to do this? Should we do this? We have important decisions to make as a church. We have important decisions to make as individuals. Shall we shortlist two options and roll some dice? Why not choose the new eldership on that basis? That might be fun. But the uneasiness in the Bible study and the questions around the text show that we really haven't grasped the unique moment in salvation history that is before you in this point. It is utterly unique. 
Of course, the casting of lots, though, in their day was not that uncommon among God's people. They're actually doing something scriptural. It was how Joshua arranged for the land to be divided among the 12 tribes. When Old Testament priests were unable to discern the will of God, they prayerfully cast what was called the Urim and Thummim, lots. The outcome of which was, as they say, determined by God. As Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. So this casting of lots is included in here, not as an example for us to copy or a practice to put in place. No, this was life before the Spirit of God had come. And when it comes to decision making in the life of a church and in church life, we should do most of what the apostles did here, most of what the church did here. Like them, we should search the scriptures for wisdom and instruction. Like them, we should pray that God would help us understand what's going on so that we might make the right choice, the wise choice. And now that we have the Holy Spirit living in us, we have the Bible, prayer and the Spirit's help provides the ideal combination for decision making. So I don't think the casting of lots is included for us to copy, but to show us actually in this text, uniquely who's doing the choosing. Because when they pray and they think about it and they look among themselves, who fit the criteria in the first place? A couple of guys come up. And then they pray, Lord, you're the heart knower. You're the heart knower. You're the one that knows the hearts of these men. Show us which of the two you have chosen. See who's doing the decision making in this? It's Jesus. That's comforting to know. The ascended Jesus is still involved in the building of his church. Do you remember last time? Luke tells us about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Acts is showing us about the continuation of what Jesus is doing through his church. Well, we see him involved right here. He's chosen, Matthias is chosen by Jesus. And that is reassuring. And these are the credentials for apostleship. Verbal instruction from Jesus, visual confirmation of the risen Jesus, and personally commissioned by Jesus. Now, you do understand that some of our charismatic friends then are wrong when they claim apostleship for some of their leaders. I met a guy at the door one time who was just in visiting. I think he was trying to plant a church in the city. It was a couple of years ago. And he came up and he's saying, I'm a pastor. I was like, great, I always like meeting pastors. Tell me what's happening, what's your church? And so he told me a little bit about what they were trying to do, and it was encouraging. And then I said, so... Um, where did you train? You know, has, has anyone, who's confirmed your calling? What church has sent you? Oh, I was sent by an apostle. Now, I was a little bit rude at this point, okay? So I'm not saying that this is the way you should respond. And I was like, you know someone who's seen the risen Jesus? <laughs> not quite, he said. Okay, so you, but you've, you know someone who's been taught by Jesus? Not quite. I said, oh, maybe he's not an apostle. You know, it's not the right term to use in this sense. No, the apostle, apostleship is retained primarily for those who are the foundational building blocks. There's one other guy who gets to be called an apostle in the, in the New Testament. It's the apostle Paul. Why? Oh, verbal instruction from Jesus. Galatians tells us that Jesus taught him. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, every time we hear it, I, for what I received from an apostle? From another church member. From what I received from the Lord, I also passed on to you. 
He's been verbally instructed by Jesus. Of course, on the Damascus Road, as we'll see in the book of Acts, he was apprehended by Jesus and personally commissioned by him. I am sending you to open their eyes. That sounds like a commission to me. And interestingly, when we see later on in Acts, in a few chapters then, when the apostle James is killed for his faith, there is no intention to replace him. Because the foundation has been set. This is a criteria for apostleship. This, all of this to show us that our faith is built on sure foundations. The scriptures are written by these guys or written by those who wrote for them. That means we can have utmost confidence in these foundations. We can read it and enjoy it and know it to be true. We're not building our life on some fabrication or some story that's been made up. No, we share it having read it. We open it with people and we refuse to be deceived by those who claim, oh, it's a fake, it's made up, it's just propaganda. It's nonsense. There's no historical basis for it any basic reading into the veracity, the truthfulness, the reliability of the scriptures will fill you with confidence given the innumerable manuscripts that we have that tie us back to the very word of the apostles. It's a faith builder. gives you confidence. We must share it. But it also teaches us that we should never deviate from the teaching of the apostles. If we do deviate from the teaching of the twelve, we're drifting from what God is building. Because the truth of the matter is, the true church never moves beyond the normative witness of the apostles, no matter what kind of pressure culture puts on us. Never. So the decisions in churches in Scotland regarding homosexuality, are wrong. Church leaders like Steve Chalk are wrong. For they move away from the normative witness of the apostles and read in a contemporary understanding which isn't there. But we, the true church, the true church in this nation and in every nation across the world recognize that the word of the Lord stands forever. We take that word to be true and as the plumb line for all things, for life, for doctrine, for practice. Our faith is built on sure foundations. Brothers and sisters, do you see why this text is here? Yes, we have power to proclaim, but proclaim what? The testimony of the apostles, it's sure. Do you read it? Do you understand it? Do you devote yourself to regular attendance at church? To come under the hearing of this word? Do you devote yourself to reading it on your own? Do you devote yourself to reading it with someone? A fellow believer that as iron sharpens iron, you may sharpen one another in your understanding of the text and your application of it. This is why we're thinking long and hard about growth groups. This is is why we're thinking long and hard about how do we deepen our maturity in the faith. It's for these reasons. Have you ever read it with anyone? My mum has been going to church 
for decades. She attends a Catholic church. I used to attend it with her when I was a little boy. And I asked her just a couple of months ago, um, would you like to read the Bible with me, Mum? She was like, I know your game. <laughs> You're trying to convert me. Yes, Mother, I am. But I said, how many years have you been going to the church? She said about 25, 30 years, something like that. can't remember exactly what she said. I said, has anyone ever sat down and opened it up with you and explained it? She said, uh, never. Apart from a 10-minute monologue at the front, which probably has very little to do with the Bible. Never. I opened up John 1 with her, with the Word 1 to 1 booklet. These things, we've been talking about them in the church for a few months. And I said to her, I want to start with John 1. Can I read it to you? Just let's see how it goes, see if you like it. She said, okay. And I said, I opened up to John 1 and she said, oh yes, I love the start, I love the Christmas story. And I was like... I said, uh, John doesn't really start with the Christmas story, Mum. And she went, oh, I'm not going to like this. <laughs> I was like, oh, Lord, help me. And I said, let me tease you through it. And we walked through this in about 10 minutes. And I might have been reading words from a page, but I was praying my heart out. there at the end of it did you enjoy it and she said yes I did and she said now I understand why John doesn't start with a Christmas story and she said this is going to take me to the end of the service she said now I understand why John doesn't start with a Christmas story he wants to show you that Jesus existed in eternity. How many more people, like my mum, do you know? They've never had it open to them. And with 10 minutes of simple explanation, they just start to see a little bit. And I felt so guilty for keeping it to myself. Because I've been a Christian for years. And I've invited her to services and stuff like that. But I've never just said, do you want to read the thing that has opened my eyes to the most glorious and wonderful thing I've ever, ever known? Brothers and sisters, man alive, you get it, right? We've got to share the gospel. We've got to take God's word out. Will you ask someone, will you just pray hard and ask someone that you know and you've built relationships with, when you recognize that God has given you this platform to share the gospel with someone, will you, will you ask them? Do you know what, they might turn around and say no. Will you pray harder? And you never know when that opportunity might come around, but do it. Because our faith is built on sure foundations sure foundations.
you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, the Bible teaches that if you receive the teaching of these 12 apostles contained in this New Testament, we receive Jesus. When we receive Jesus, we're welcomed into his family. We become part of the church. If you haven't done that, right now, based on this whole building imagery, you're like a dodgy brick lying around the building site because of sin. Not yet part of the construction. If the building is completed without you, you'll be discarded, carted off, not to a skip, but to a furnace. But if Jesus is opening your heart to believe the messengers that he has sent, and if you turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus, you'll become part of a building that is a million times greater than the Burj Khalifa. Because <laughs> at the end of the age, you'll realize you're part of what God has been building. The church of Jesus Christ. The thing that will stand forever. And as a reward, the Lord will on that day allow you to see descend from heaven a new city. The heavenly Jerusalem, the new dwelling place where we, the church, will dwell with God. And it's described in the New Testament as having four walls and three names on either wall. The names of the twelve tribes? No, 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 no. The names of the apostles. Believe it. And if you're not quite there, please do come and chat with me. If I can hold it together, I will read this with you. The word one to one. I pray that God would open your eyes. Let's take a second. In fact, let's just sing. Let's sing.